Okay, number six, here we are. Uh, we still, again, no pressure, no pressure. Um, still no intro music. And so um, I have, my daughter is the lead role in the school play of Aladdin. I wake up in the middle of the night singing, uh, it's a whole new world and uh, one step in front of the other and all that stuff. So if he doesn't come up with something soon, I'm gonna start singing Aladdin to start this thing off. So any yeah, report? I could say, you know, I like that that song that, uh, you know, Prince Ali, Wanderer, see that. And that rhymes. Yeah, let's creative process. Prince Ali, third 50. Ah, oh there oh could be God. something there. There could be something there. Don't don't let Maddie hear that. Don't let my daughter hear that. She'll <laughs> write the whole thing. We'll be in trouble. Um, first, uh, a lot of thoughts out to our great friend, Brent Rudemiller who is, uh, uh, let's just say a little under the weather this week, but he's going to, he's going to come through on the other side. So we want to say hi to Brent. Um, and, uh, you know, know that we're thinking about him today, big day. Um, and obviously big shout out to university or Arizona state university and Cal Berkeley. Okay. Cal won again. Congratulations, Dave Durden. Uh, great job as always. Uh, but ASU 10 years after the cancel, the program was canceled, um, second place at the NCAA championships with some incredible swims, obviously by Mar, um, by, um, Leon Marchand, um, redefining the sport, uh, especially with his underwaters, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Did you have a chance to see any of his swims, Wayne? Yeah, I saw most of it. And, and, uh, it's an incredible example of a really well-prepared athlete who can execute when and where it matters, just seems to have the whole package and you know over the years i'm sure you've been in the same position people will say who's the best swimmer you've ever seen and why and for a long time people had asked me for example about ian thorpe who was a great australian middle and long distance swimmer and well could sprint and could do a whole bunch of stuff and i used to say because he's got the package he's big he's strong he's fast well prepared parents had had a daughter who'd been through the system previously, a very experienced senior coach, mentally very strong, very resilient, hard trainer. It seems like if you start to do that research behind the scenes, Marshawn's got technique, he's got skill, he's with a very experienced, very smart senior coach who knows exactly what to do in a quality environment, starting to put together all the elements that we're constantly chasing, but to see him execute, so consistently across that week. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. I mean, that's one of the things that Bob had said in an, in an interview afterwards about how similar he was to Michael. And it was the training uh, about how many great practices he had or how many just solid practices he had and how few practices weren't at that level. And he said it's not that they were all great. It's just that they're all at a certain level. That um, that is required to uh, kind of be that person, and it is that that uh, magical union of talent, uh, education, um, you know, just making sure you do everything right as often as possible. And we saw the most prepared athlete, uh, you know, again, it all come coming together, which is gonna be really exciting to watch uh, next year in France because I have no idea what he's gonna do. He can do anything. Yeah, incredible. It, it, it'd be a good discussion for another, you know, you and I always joke when we have a discussion, say there's another show, but there is another show there that, that how do you teach swimmers what it looks like? So, yeah. you know, I often think that, you know, over the years I've seen swimmers come out of good programs, get invited to the national training camp or the national breaststroke camp. And all of a sudden they go, Oh, okay, I get it when they're surrounded by so, – so they might be the standout young swimmer in their club program, but it's all based around their training standards. So that's the level. Then they go into an environment where there's 30 of the best swimmers in the nation all training together, and I think they look around going, wow, I get it now. I can see what it looks like, it being the training standard that's going to help me be – my best and then they try to take that back to their club environment that'd be a great topic wouldn't it how do you yeah. teach swimmers and coaches for that matter what does what does it look like what does a quality 
effective training environment look like? Uh, and it's funny. It's actually a good segue now that I think about it, because really what we're going to talk about today is um, the way that Wayne put it. It's equipment, training tools, gear, gimmicks, and gizmos. And we're not going to talk so much about the gimmicks and gizmos because that, I think, gets into the technology aspect of things, which, who knows, could be a whole other uh, podcast because I do have some of my favorite tools here, obviously, like a tempo trainer, uh, something I use every day, um, and, and then how that ties into our, uh, our app and smart goggles and all that stuff. But, you know, it's kind of like sticking to, um, sticking to just regular training tools and when to use them. And when you say, you know, how to, how to, what is it supposed to look like? I always envision tools and paddles and fins and things. These are ways to get someone to achieve the path of the hands or the feet or the flow of the body or, you know, snorkels for stability. The tool should be used to enhance or give someone the feeling that of what they want to become. And so I think that it kind of ties into what you're saying is is uh, is is where to use equipment to to simulate or to get yourself into that that mode. Yeah, it's it, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? That a lot of times we'll go to visit programs. I visit a lot of programs, the same as you. And one of the things I'm interested in is to have a look at their bag. You know, their gear bag. What's in the gear bag? And to try and look at that and understand the philosophy of the coach and the program. So, you know, you open it up, it's almost like your Christmas bag that you open on your stocking on Christmas morning. And I open up and I look and I go, okay, this guy's got really short fins. Um, what's coach thinking? What's the philosophy? What, what's coach trying to achieve? These guys got really big paddles and little tiny paddles. So what's coach thinking? All right, well, he's probably integrating the gear for feel and touch and for power and strength. What else am I saying? Oh, they got a snorkel. Everyone's got the same snorkel. Okay, so what's the thinking there? So I, I think it's the gear is a reflection of the philosophy of the program. That's that's always the exciting thing for me to try and figure out what are they trying to do. Then watching the program to see if the way they use the equipment mm -hmm. and how they use the equipment and when they use the equipment is, is how does that actually represent, how is that reflected in the workout? Absolutely. Well, for our first time ever, we have a guest and uh, it's a, a very good friend um, that I've known for many, many years that we uh, we hang out a lot together. And uh, it's John Mix from Finice. And I figured talking about equipment, uh, I've been around John for a long time and been watched the process of how to create equipment. So, John, how you doing? Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So much fun, our first guest. We're gonna, you know, <laughs> we'll talk about. You this may be sorry. <laughs> you may be sorry. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Finis has been around for how many years now? Thirty years. 30 years. Started with a monofin? Yes. Yeah. So you and Pablo started everything off with a monofin. I actually have a monofin here with me today that I'm going to show off in, the, in a few minutes. It's uh, maybe not everyone in the swim community has seen this monofin, but it's incredibly important to me. Um, but, uh, you know, this stuff's been around. Hey, look, when I was in, when I was in grade school, I think I was in like middle school, I had, I was in shop class and we had to create something and I had no clue what to create. I was not the most handy guy. So I took two pieces of plexiglass, cut them into rectangles, put two holes in them, put some tubes through them. And I made hand paddles. Okay. <laughs> so I made hand paddles in like sixth, seventh grade. And of course the teacher says, what are these things? And I said, they're hand paddles. And he said, for what? I said, for swimming. He said, that's a D there's nothing there. I said, I bet I use these more than anyone else in here uses what they built. And so <laughs> from, from the simplicity of a sixth grader, not very good making paddles, what, how do you come up with something new? Because these things have been around for, I don't know, how, how long has swim equipment been around? 
Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's worth telling the story about the monofin. Uh, you know, why did we bring a monofin to market? And uh, the, the real reason was I, I was fortunate to play some water polo in Europe in 1987. And in 1988, I watched David Burkhoff at the Olympic Games basically complete the race mostly underwater and backstroke and pop up at the end with a silver medal, a couple strokes uh, going each direction. Um, and I, I, I was already in love with that monofin in 87. I brought one home. And when Pablo uh, went on to, to win in the Olympics in 92, he and I being former teammates when we were young, I asked Pablo, I said, hey, Pablo, so did, you know, congratulations, but, you know, did you train with a monofin also? And Pablo said, oh, what? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it's this big giant thing. I have one. Let's go for a swim. So we went for a swim and, uh, and Pablo, the, his first reaction was he went underwater and he swam and he, he got to the wall so fast that he, he practically cracked his skull. And he said, oh, my gosh, that's so fast. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, oh, it's so fun. Like, okay, it's fast, it's fun, that's interesting. Then Pablo rolls to his side and he goes down the pool like a slithering, you know, sidewinder. And he looks at me and he goes, gosh, people always ask me, how do I understand how to kick in both directions? He says, you put this big fin on and it teaches you how to kick in both, there's power in both directions of your kick. So here I am thinking, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, my brothers were entrepreneurs. And I said, well, Pablo, maybe we should make a company he says, well, what would we do? And I said, well, let's just make cool swim products that teach people a better feel for the water or let's, you know, people like yourself or coaches like zero in on the, the, the little details that can make people technically better. And that was it. That was the inception of the company. You know, the it's pronounced Finis and Finis is kind of that old, you know, we went to a, a private Jesuit school and a little bit of Latin in there. And we said, well, if the first products we're going to build is a fin, let's just go with like the Latin version of this is it. Um, so, you know, our own spin on it, it's finis. Um, mm -hmm. and, and from my exposure to the monofin was also my exposure in Europe to this weird sport called fin swimming, where they wore a snorkel around the back of their head or strapped to their head. And again, I said to Pablo, I say, Pablo, what about this? Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, fortunately in Northern California, we had Richard Quick, we had Nort Thornton, we had a, uh, Bill Thompson. I mean, we had access to other great coaches who uh, kind of gave us that stamp that said, yeah, I like what you guys are doing. And uh, so we, we didn't quit our job for four or five years. We um, had a regular day job, but at the point that we started making products that, uh, uh, you know, we were able to bring to the market. It was a lot more fun than doing the, the high tech job I was doing. And, and that's kind of the inception of it. So um, many of these ideas, those two maybe were things I had exposure to. But uh, when we think about the Hydrahip and Tech Talk, that was, I give that credit to Nort Thornton. You know, he would say, hey, Matt Biondi would warm up so slow during warm ups that people would look at him and wonder what he's doing. But basically, it was just, snapping his hips at the top of his stroke and you know gliding and swimming slow um, and today we hear that phrase all the time you know swim slow perfect technique like uh but uh so so the whole theory behind the high drip and tech talk was to allow people to understand the timing of the hip rotation is equally as important as the amount of the hip rotation and the power in that hip rotation so that's um yeah, that's early product development stuff. Well, I, I think that probably one of the key things that you just hit on is most people put on equipment and they just want to hammer. Okay. Yeah. And and what I love about what you just said was that when we and we've talked about David Popovich and and you know his warm up for a couple hours doing sculling and things like that. And we've talked about I don't think we've talked about Jason Lezak, but Jason Lezak in his last year of training, a lot of slow stuff, a lot of feel, you know, very very specific things. And so. Um, do you, when you design something, do you anticipate that it's going to be used very fast or very slow? Or is there use cases for each one? Enough. Um, there's a couple people oh, in break. We can go ahead and start over again. I think you're breaking uh, up a little bit. How about now? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's not with development. And uh, we use great product. Okay. Unfortunately, the, the, the beauty of technology, uh, all we heard was product at the end of that. So, um, so I, I, I will show my monofin. Okay. This is what I was going to, I was saving a little bit, but I'm going to show my monofin. So here's my monofin. Okay. So obviously the design has gone from, uh, from fin swimming all the way to, you know, why is something like this so important? Uh, well, with a nine-year-old daughter, I'll tell you why. Um, she can play in the pool. She can be engaged in the water. Um, and at the same time, learn the proper movements of underwater dolphin kick without having an assignment of learning how to underwater dolphin kick. And so, uh, John, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is that I have students that come to me that they say they have a, um, they have a requirement once they reach a certain age. And once they reach a certain age, based on the club team that they're on, uh, the requirement is they are required to only use short fins as soon as they reach a, a certain age. Now, a lot of the shorter fins, in my opinion, because of the heavy nature of some of them, can put a lot of strain on a young kid's feet. And so to do a blanket statement of, okay, you're this year, this many years old, you have to use this adult equipment at this point. Um, you know, it, it's almost like the big heavy fins that you have, are, are they the edge fins? If yep. I, if I'm now, do yep. you make those in really small sizes or are they mostly in big sizes? No, we, we do not make them in small sizes. Um, I think one, you know, what I started to say is, uh, when we sit in a room together, that group in product development, we don't think that we know the right answer and that we should come up with this product. What it really is, it's, there's kind of an osmosis pr process, like there is so much information coming in and being filtered at all times that oftentimes you, you, you get that aha moment. So like your question about fins, I think the most important thing when we think about fins would be specificity. Why are we doing what we're doing? Um, I'm a big fan of even the long floating fin because it just the feeling of forward propulsion will lift the hips up higher, allow you to put the head a little bit lower. Um, you feel, you know, uh, uh, there's a cubic relationship between speed and resistance. So with 2% more speed, we have 8% more resistance on our body. So when we put on fins and we're traveling faster, we can start to notice those little idiosyncrasies in our stroke. So um, specificity is what I believe most important. So if someone said, let's wear a short fin, now Richard Quick was really well known. He had his, he had his swimmers with the short zoomer and then he had the, the, the Z2. And he would say, let's wear the short zoomers when we wanna do really hard work and build muscles. The short zoomer is our, is our pickup truck. It's for the short yardage for going to the store and putting the lumber in it. When we're gonna go drive into the city, we're gonna put on a longer fin so we have a sedan. I want smooth, long swimming. Um, specificity is really important in training no matter what we're doing. I mean, one of the other uh, products that I've been testing for you is this teeny little snorkel. Now, you might not be able to see the size of it, but it's too small for my head. And this was uh, this obviously is tested by my nine-year-old daughter. Now, when I think of something like this, to be able to teach someone how to use a snorkel at a very young age, then we can work. We can spend a lot of time on working on pull pattern, on length, on balance, on things that obviously get thrown off when the head is much larger than the rest of the body. And so um, this, I think, is uh, I'm really looking forward to the final product of this because I have a, a lot of young swimmers that I would love for them to dig deeper into their stroke and to look into it. But, but they have a very small lung capacity, so they can't really dig into that. Um, how long has this product been in development? And when did you first start thinking about that? Um, we did, we did an early version probably 10 years ago, but we didn't do a great job at it. So, you know, not everything works first time, uh, counter, there was something counterintuitive that we didn't learn until maybe 18 months ago through some testing that it's not the, 
it's actually that when you're working with younger kids, it's not that their lungs are smaller, it's rather that they are, the, the breathing is shorter and faster. So mm. counterintuitive to something we thought, we, and we, we almost like we weren't working on the project and that's what happens sometimes. You work on something and you decide we're just gonna have to set it aside because I don't think we have it figured out yet. Um, so it was only you know participating in conferences with coaches and parents and listening to the ongoing conversation about how do we teach children 10 and under, 12 and under, how to do some of these fine skills. When you do wear the, the front snorkel, you eliminate the complicated breathing motion. And when you eliminate that complicated breathing motion of rotation, and um, now you can zero in on what it is that we want to concentrate on. So, so people can like, so people will say, hey, what's the best way to teach a young swimmer early vertical forearm? Hey, what's yeah. the best way to teach a children to rotate their hips at the right time in their stroke? Well, these are complicated things, but when you could say, hey, let's put a snorkel on them and let's swim slow, slowly and exactly. purposefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, only hearing then, and then someone in the group would say, well, how young can you put a kid in the snorkel? And it's pretty common knowledge. People are saying, oh, 12 years old. Well, that's probably about right. But, you know, at that point, the snorkels that are on the market today, the tubes are longer, the bore is wider, the mouthpiece is bigger. You're, you're, you're asking a child to use an adult product. And we said, you know what? I think there's enough use of the snorkel today. If we make one the right size for smaller children, coaches can embrace it. The children will understand it because they see other kids using them. Uh, I, think, I think it'll lead to much uh, better quality swimming in the future when we're ready to get kids in that youth snorkel. If I can give one piece of advice on the snorkel, I'll do it publicly here. Okay. Um, the next one you make, make sure that the hole goes all the way through. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, this is Did a prototype. She, uh, yeah, she can't breathe through it. <laughs> so, so this was this was uh, an old desktop publishing FPO for position only. <laughs> so, she was very brave. I was very proud of her. She there she was with something she couldn't breathe through. She looked great That's in it. Um, I, I forgot we had sent you that one. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> the people would call me a bad parent for saying, hey, here, <laughs> use this snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, probably the, my favorite trend that you're following these days that I really like and, it, and it's fun to be involved in is this is one of the prototype Manta paddles and, and down to the, uh, the final one is that we spend a lot of time getting this pitch just right. Uh, because with the larger paddles, the larger flat paddles, there's a tendency for the arm to, to float and fly and rise. And so this very subtle pitch allows the hand to get into the EVS, EVF position uh, more, more easily. And then you can apply the force with the, the lats and the rest of the arm. Uh, how, how big of a pusher, how purposeful was this process of going to the trend of really looking at injury prevention in product design? Well, I think for 20 years we've been requested because I think we, we think very technically and people have said, why don't you build a strength paddle? And our response was always because you're going to injure somebody. You know, mm. uh, if you take a big flat piece of plastic and strap it to your hand with surgical tubing, um, then you're going to go through the motion, whether that paddle stays on or not, because you've basically duct taped it to your hand. Um, and when we thought about, you know, wh- when and where does that injury uh, occur? I think it probably does occur often when people are wearing an oversized paddle. So we deliberately said no for a long time. and. But after, you know, all the inquiries, our our R and D place is really quite fun. The uh, you know, a, a side note: the ISO paddle started with little pieces mm. of Play-Doh. I mean, we were building Play-Doh dummies a hundred different times, trying to to figure out how do we teach this skill that that Nort, you know, wanted to tell us. And it was finally Michael Kavik who 
really came in the door one day and he explained why it made so much sense. And Tim Elson, myself, David Bottle, we had that aha moment. We're like, oh, holy crap, I think now we know how to do it. So two, three years with an oversized paddle, we, we have uh, nothing short of a hundred in the building and you look at them 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 and eventually you say, God, they're all flat. I think I know the problem. I think the problem is you get too far out on your stroke and when you want to go into the catch phase, there's nothing about the paddle that's helping you get there. So you're having to push down instead of following through with some uh, inertia to, you know, keep forward propulsion. And uh, I don't know who it was. And, you know, it could likely you could have been a piece of that equation, Glenn, because we send you a lot of products, a lot of we, we had so many iterations of a bigger shoulder safer paddle. Um, safer not safe um but yeah. i think we we've, we've found something that um you know if a coach wanted to teach a little bit of hip driven or shoulder driven freestyle i think you can make it happen with that paddle that's pretty interesting um i think it works there's there's an an application for each of the strokes um not to say we should use it in all strokes not to say if you're not a uh, a young buck don't wear it for butterfly, but if you are, you can. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, there, there's there's some elements to it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think the the most important thing is we really do take. Uh, we, we are not going to build a product for the sake of building a product. We're going to build a product because, you know, what education does it serve? What what you know what does it highlight? That allows us to now people can use that product as a strength paddle and it's fun to swim fast. So when you put it on, you get a lot of power, you get to swim fast. Um, when you do move into that catch phase, the paddle does dive. So it's safer. Um, yeah. So that, that that's my best answer is everything that we're building. You, you've got to think about um, not, try not to injure people. Try to make something that is is you know, well-rounded enough. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, popping on here with us. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of all your products. And, um, you know, I've got the smart goggles blinking back here, um, you know, but that's where that's along the, the gizmos line of things, which, uh, you know, <laughs> we can get deep into that one for sure, because uh, we work a lot on that together. Um, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to get some some more background from someone that's kind of deep into it. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on here. And uh, now Wayne and I are going to talk about some different things about equipment. And uh, I know you got a meeting to get to. So yeah. um, if I if I can add one thing only because uh, <laughs> you brought up, you know, that's one of those gizmos, um, the the decision making process. Yeah. So you mentioned the smart goggle. And uh, at the time that we were evaluating, do we want to come up with such a product? One of the most important things was what happens when the goggles do build up a layer of uh, uh, gunk and they become foggy. So I said, it's got to be removable. You've got to be able to remove that little chip. It's an optical tower. Um, yeah. It's got all the same logic as a phone or a, a, a smartwatch, but um, the winning piece of this one for me was, um, you know, understanding stroke rate. How do you teach stroke rate? Uh, it's kind of like calculus. So can we teach it to 10 year olds? Well, I think at the point that they're swimming and they can see it in their peripheral vision and they do start to see that repetitive look, this is, well, gosh, I, I am hitting this 54 or 56 at the coach's time. What, what's it mean? Oh, it means 54 strokes per minute. You could start to relate. Now I think. So the education side of it was one and the simplicity of it for just counting laps for, you know, I, I love to go out and do a 500 or a thousand yard warm up, and I don't want to count my laps. I got a lap count, but the probably the most winningest thought of it was it captures a very accurate journal of your entire workout every time you swim. Mm -hmm. So when you are done, you could look back to that phone and, and you know, if you were making an effort, you know if you cut out short, you know if you finish strong. And if you're lucky enough to be 
coached by someone, a coach too can now spend more time, more time watching you. And after a workout, he can say, hey, Wayne, come on over. I want to take a look at that. You're, when we were doing those 200s, you looked really clean in the middle. I'd like to see the data behind it. Um, it's all there. So, you know, that, that journal, I, I know that there's a lot of swimmers that say they went home after practice and kept the ledger of what they did every day. Um, well, we don't have to write it down anymore. You know? um, so I think it's a, it, it, was, it was one that people asked me, they said, are you sure you want to do this, John? It's a big investment. Are you sure? I said, yeah, I think, I think it, it crosses that bridge from teaching younger swimmers something really valuable teaching the competitive swimmer something really valuable, but also applying to the fund for the rest of their lives for health and wellness, because it's nice to see that, you know, chalk it up, you know, I'm, I'm in the water three days a week yeah. and I feel yeah. good about it. So close your rings. Well guys, th thank you both very much for your time. Thanks for inviting me on today. All right, man. I will talk Thanks to you soon. Job, John. Thanks Sean. Thank you. Bye. All right, man. Um, so that was a lot. Yeah, he he's he's been a, a great friend for a long time, and and like I said, someone that for this conversation, I think, you know, I don't want it to just be an ad for Finise, but I do appreciate what they do as a company. So why not? You know, I um I don't know about you. The the thing I appreciated about John and I was really listening was I think there's a lot of people in the business who see the number of people who swim and then go, what we need is a product to sell to these guys. I think what I'm hearing from him, and I, I'd met John, I think twice before at conferences in the US, what I hear is he's, he's identifying real need and then using their expertise and their technology and their creative process to provide solutions to that need. And that, that's pretty rare. You know, I, I get e emails, I'm sure you do, or mm. I get LinkedIn connections uh, every, almost every week where someone's come up with a product that they want help promoting or they want a connection to to sell product, but right. they're, they're still almost in the design phase even though they've gone to market because they don't really understand it. They haven't done enough time understanding the sport. Uh, what seems to be good about John, and I, I remember a long conversation I had with him in Cleveland a while ago, and you were there too, I think, that that when you're dealing with people who actually know the sport, got a feel for the sport, and who are swimmers themselves, the products are a reflection of genuine need. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I've been to the factory, I've been to well, the warehouse, I've been to the warehouse, I've been to the design studio, I've been to their offices. And what I can tell you is that probably the coolest product that he's in development of right now Nobody in his, well, it's, I mean, he's been advised not to build, which is a fin for amputees. Okay. And so uh, we, we both work with a lot of uh, Paralympians. And so the idea that, you know, to build stability in an amputee uh, for, as from a leg standpoint um, is very, very difficult. Um, so, you know, you put one fin on somebody and they're going to, you know, kind of veer to one side or it's going to be off weighted. And so if you have enough of a leg, John is in development of a fin, you know, whether it comes to market, I know he's working on it. I've seen it. I have held it in my hand. And again, you know, nobody knows this, but I had a brother that uh, lost his leg to cancer. And so this is something that's very meaningful to me uh, from, from being a kid. So, you know, when I saw him working on that, I mean, it kind of tells you like who the person is, um, you know, inside. So, um, uh, you know, fins, pole boys, paddles, goggles, snorkels, bands, kickboards, resistance training. There are so many things out there that can be worked on. And the, and the question now, Wayne, is when and, and why and how do you use them? And rather than going through every one of them individually, like as a whole, what is your feeling on when to pull these things out? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I categorize the way coaches use equipment as it, there's the category, which is tick the box, which is we've got a swimming program. We therefore should have fins and paddles 
and a kickboard and snorkel and we should have all the gear. Why? Because that's what's in, in swimming. The, the counter discussion is to say to a coach, well, what are you trying to do? What's your core technical model that you believe in? What are you trying to do? So if they say, well, I'm about uh, body shape, I'm about minimizing resistance, I'm about uh, balance in the water, do the tools that you have reflect your philosophy? So in other words, are you trying almost to fit the athlete to the tool or the tool to the athlete? What's your, what's your core philosophy around it? And, and to me, that's, it's a, uh, a, a critical question because the easy thing to do is to just say everyone in the squad has a list of the same tools. We buy them from the same manufacturer that it's the equipment that's determining the workout and the philosophy. The better way, I think, is for a coach to think, well, what am I trying to do this year? Well, this year, it's about speed and power. What tools are available to help my athletes and I reflect that in our training? So that's, I think, is the always the question to come back to the coach. What are you trying to do? Because once you go down the equipment burrow, you know, Alice in Wonderland, there's so much stuff you can buy. Some of it might work with some athletes in some circumstances. I'd prefer to say to the coach, what is it you're trying to do? What's your core philosophy this year? Well, this year we're going to go uh, balance, rhythm, and we're going to make that transition from limb-driven stroke to hip-driven stroke. All right, this is the year to introduce snorkel. This is the year to introduce I, I think coaches have got to figure that out first and then the equipment is a reflection of their philosophy. I like that. I think you're right. I think that it's uh, it's from uh, a long history in that, uh, you know, way back when when we swam the, the anywhere from 18 to 20,000 meters a day, it's how do you vary – the work so that we don't kill them, but still give them something to do. And so one of the ways would be to offload certain parts of the body at certain parts of the practice. So you would go these long kick sets and then you would go these long pole sets and then you would swim. And so over the course of two and a half to three hours, you could vary things enough that the person could survive through the, through the workout. But there wasn't a lot of thought other than it was more of the same. I mean, I remember, um, I won't talk about the sets and things like that, but I really, you know, long breaststroke kick sets of, of 200s were done on intervals that would barely give you any rest. And so it wasn't that you had a chance to think about your kick. And pole sets certainly weren't to lengthen the stroke or, you know, work on rotation or work on body balance. They were another aspect of here's how you train. And I think that the tools have progressed to a point or, or you know, it still is thought of as part of the training rather than an opportunity to really look at how do you improve from a technical standpoint? Um, how do you focus more? Because the tools should be done in such a way that uh, that are helpful to the overall uh, performance or the stroke of the athlete. And again, not saying that like resistance training, um, you know, is, is tremendous for teaching someone how to, how to hold the water. So it, it just is. Um, but I think, I think a lot of use of equipment is just to, like you said, tick the box and say, okay, well, how do I keep them going for the next 20 minutes until the next set? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And the the other the thing that I've never got, I've never figured out, you might have the answer to this, that that I, I I don't know whether or not we need to have what I would call a transition process between a, an equipment based set and just a straight swim set. So what I mean by that is what I typically see is coaches will go here's our warm up, and then we're going to do, uh, we're going to do 1650s 
with our big paddles on. And then we're going to do a long freestyle set. And, you know, I've, I often say to coaches, why are you doing What's the purpose? Is, uh, is the benefit that you're getting from the 1650s with big paddles on, is that a standalone benefit? So you're saying at that point I'm developing strength or mid-range touch or whatever it might be. And the next and the set's completely different. Are you doing that so that you're hoping there's some learning, some residual learning that will carry forward into right. executing the stroke in the in the straight swim set? Do we need a pro set? What do you think? Is there a connection? You know, when you see equipment, so yeah, same thing with fins. Okay, we're putting fins on for uh, to maintain some speed and momentum while we're doing some upper body drills. And we need a bit more speed for the athlete to execute that drill effectively and efficiently, faster than normal kick speed. So put that on. Then we execute the whole stroke in a main set. Is there? Do we need some sort of connection? Like, how, how do you see the, the the balance between that? Well, one of the things that I like to do is that if someone's using equipment. And we go from equipment to swim. And let's say it's the large paddles or some fins or something like that. It feels so good from a, from a kinesthetic standpoint. You know, you just get this feeling that's just amazing. And then you take them off and all of a sudden the hands feel like they're swimming with fists yeah. and the feet feel like they're sticks. And so when you say transition, one of the things that I like to call it is just a cleansing of the palate. Take a 50 or 100 to like egg beater kick when you're using fins and just kind of wake the feet back up and maybe swim very slowly and really think about what the hands are doing and then get back into the set so you can carry some of those feelings back in of the tools, but not focus on how bad it feels because you just took the tools off. But there, I agree with you. There needs to be a connection between these things. What is the purpose of using this thing? Because if it's just for strength, get out and lift weights. You know, I mean, when you put on big paddles, your hands are going through the water slower typically than what they can be. So you're not building hand speed, you're building strength. But again, um, you know, I've got a I've got a GMX seven sitting over here. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's a um, David McCagg's uh, resistance training system. That is just tremendous because it doesn't go just one way like buckets. It goes it goes both ways. Uh, so it's, it's really cool. Um, and that's, it's a lot cheaper than it's still expensive, but it's a lot less expensive than, so those, the towers and everything. Um, but again, I believe in resistance training as far as, uh, the ability to create power, but then here's the next question. Okay. We're talking about resistance training, power, speed, all that stuff. So what age do we start using equipment? And what age do we demand big equipment? And what age do we uh, say we're going to go fast with equipment? I think that's my biggest issue and kind of why we started this, why I wanted to do this conversation. Um, what, is, what is your feeling on, on age in and of itself with equipment? This is, the, this is where we either become rich and famous or we live with our own integrity. It may be difficult to do both because – if you and I could come up with a table that said across the top equipment yeah. and down this side, down this column, it said 10, 11, 12, 13. And we had the definitive, indisputable, globally accepted, atomic powered list of precise age and equipment use. We'd probably do really well. And we go down as two of the smartest people in, in sport instead of the two of the best at discussing drivel all the time. But the, <laughs> uh, having, having joked with that, uh, you, uh, you, and we both get this question regularly from coaches. Yeah. The first thing I say, stop thinking age, think stage. Yes. So where are they in their stage of technical development? Are they at a stage where there's a block? or there's a limit or a barrier that you don't believe you can overcome with flexibility, core stability, mobility work, dry land training. Have you got to a stage of their development where you've gone, you know, you're looking at this kid going, 
man, if they only could had that, if they only could keep pressure on in the back end, it'd make a huge difference. Bang! Then I go, I've got a tool which can help them through that stage, help them through that that block. I mean, we were joking before on text, going backwards and forwards, that you know I've got some great tools here. I use Makita products if the general manager of Makita Worldwide is listening. But I've got um, some really crazy saws and, and you know, Libby and I do some renovation work. And you walk into the job and you go, today we're going to pull that wall down. I've got a hammer, I've got a screwdriver, and I've got my brute force. And I go, I can't do that. I can't move that. I turn around, that tool does that job. And that's what I try to get coaches to think about is, is they go technical model, long, nice, soft, easy touch on entry, nice eye elbow, connection and pressure through stroke. That's what I want to try and achieve. All right, this kid, something's just not there at the top end. They're just not getting that ease of entry, that early connect. There's a tool to teach them how to do that. So I really try to get coaches at first stage, what is it you're trying to do? What stage of technical development is that athlete at? And then is there a tool that I can introduce to get them over that hurdle or to help them through that stage of technical development? It's it's crazy. I did a Zoom this morning. We do a Zoom every Tuesday for Go Swim, and, and this was our first week of underwater dolphin. And doing head lead underwater dolphin and hand lead underwater dolphin and or just body dolphin stuff. And um, talking about using fins uh, at certain points and that how don't kick when you have them on, allow the legs to flow through and let the increased surface area. And I said exactly what you just said. Let the tool do the work. Don't don't try to force it. And I actually used an example of a carpenter carrying a really big hammer and then trying to hit the nail in. And when he tries to hit the nail in, he misses the nail. But when he lets the hammer fall onto the nail, that's the tool doing the work. If a, if a, if a, a carpenter were to hammer nails with brute force all day long, uh, the house would look horrible. But it's that artistry of, of the alignment and letting the, the hammer do the work. Obviously, there's some power involved with it. Hey, can, I, can I ask you a question? Oh, just something jumped out. One of the things I learned from Sweetenham years ago, this is about dolphin kick because you just you, you fired my brain, is doing dolphin kick with your hands in that position to start with. And the first time I saw him do it, him and I are running a clinic somewhere. And I looked at it and I said, man, what's the purpose of doing that? Or we could say, what's the porpoise of doing that? Dolphin oh, kicking. There like you go. Yeah. But I said, what's the purpose? And he said, well, he said it, it teaches a nice long platform body position. And as soon as they break it, they're in effectively in high elbow for them to then catch and, and do the bit. And it, it, every time I, I'm at a clinic and I do that, it coaches, it blows their mind that it's not in streamline. Therefore, what use is it? And it, it just, it, it it, you, you just click them when you mention teaching different ways of doing dolphin kick. It's the same, I think, with equipment is that even though, you know, people like John have come up with brilliant tools, what I love to see is coaches going, yeah, 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 we don't use it for that. We use it for this because we've found that they've, they've not only got the equipment to solve a particular problem, but they've taken it even further and said, and it also solves this problem, this problem, and this problem. That's when it gets really exciting. And coaches have grabbed it and have they own the equipment, the use of the equipment, and create even better ways of using it. I'm sure that's been the essence of product design for the, the big swimwear and the, the swimming, swimming equipment manufacturers. It's funny you know, you talked about different ways of doing things. One of the videos I showed this morning on the Zoom meeting was uh, – 1996 Olympics 200 fly, uh, Dennis Bankeroff streamlining like that with his hands out, um, saying that, you know, every time there's a rule that we make, someone goes out and breaks it and it allowed a little bit more free freedom, flexibility. His hands did scull a little bit, but there's actually, I don't think there's a rule against that right now. 
there probably will be at some point. But um, yeah, so age, it's not about the number. It's about the, you know, where they are mentally, physically, uh, can they control it? It's like when I was a high school coach and we would take the boys in to lift weights, they would have to lift weights on the machines or whatever it was with no weight on it for a week to two weeks until they could prove to me they knew the motion of the movement, not how much they could lift. Because high school boys are the absolute worst at just wanting to throw weight around. And, and if they can move it, it's a success. And it doesn't matter if they've isolated the muscle or not. And, and so in the front, they all want to look good in the front. Yep. That's it. They skip leg day. Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, we get, we get into, you know, there, there's so many questions, um, you know, how do you know what to use? And it's, I mean, knowing what to use is what is the problem? Yes. And then, and then what is the, what is the solution to that problem? And how can you use a tool to awaken uh, a different way of doing something within an athlete. Yeah, that's and that that, that wonderful phrase that I think of, and I, it's from a friend of mine who runs tennis in Australia, runs the Australian Open tennis. It's no good coming up with a brilliant solution to the wrong problem. And, uh, you've said that, yeah. And it, the classic for me, Glenn, in this is triathletes, and I know we've got a lot of triathletes and triathlon coaches who listen in. The classic is triathletes who are not particularly skilled in swimming who haven't come from a swimming background buying huge paddles in an effort to make their stroke longer and stronger and the the logic naturally enough they see good swimmers do it they read in the magazines about you know the latest uh, uh, paddle and its ability to increase strength and it does this so they go right my stroke's really short this will make my stroke stronger it'll make me longer i'll be more efficient and as we said last week you can't win it in the swim but you can lose it because it's inefficient saps your energy if the problem is they're not feeling the water they're not connecting early their hands are too stiff on entry they're not actually catching in the right motion they haven't got that what the paddle does is reinforce the things that are causing the stroke to fail in any case yeah. Because we're loading a mistake. And if you load a mistake, the mistake gets bigger and more pronounced and more difficult to overcome. So I think that's the key is knowing what to use is understanding what the problem actually is. Um, another classic is my partner, as you know, is an open water swimmer. And I was talking to some of the, the open water guys the other day and a lot of them are using really short, very cut down fins. And I'm saying, I said, why do you, you do that? And they said, oh, because I'm a terrible kicker. I've read that these things will make me a better kicker. Well, when you watch them, they've got poor flexibility. They don't kick from the hip. Exactly. There, there's so many things that, that need flexibility training. They need mm -hmm. to feel it. Um, they asked me what I thought and I said, guys, I'd go the other way. I'd get bigger fins yeah. and learn to flow and feel the rhythm and feel that, that flow of power down your leg to release through the tip of the fin. You guys are making it harder for yourself. They didn't believe me at all because the marketing had told them that these really short cut down fins would make them better kickers. So again, I, I think that's the whole issue is, you gotta understand what the problem actually is, and then there's a million brilliant tools to help you fix it up. And and what is the purpose of an open water swimmer having a better kick? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, to get away from the sharks, I guess you know that's a, yes. a bit I mean, of a problem for us. That's where you use egg beater kick to kick them in the nose. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not got anything to do with uh, with flutter kick. Um, so you know we've got a bunch of different ideas here what to talk about, but we'll get through the last couple here. Um, you know, how to integrate uh, equipment into training. I mean, obviously, you know, look, one of the best tools out there is a kickboard. And uh, for years I've heard people, I never use kickboards. It ruins body balance. Okay. So there's ways to use kickboards and there's ways not to use kickboards, but one of the most important ways for age group training, I'm going to go age group side of things. 
one of the most important ways to use it is the complete opposite of anything that we, we would think about from a technique standpoint, which is the social kick. One of my favorite coming podcasts, by the way, the social kick. Um, but the, um, the thing is, is that we spend, when I try to explain swimming to people who don't understand swimming, <clears throat> I say that it is a very lonely sport for the majority of it. 95% of the time, You've got your face down, you're by yourself, you can see your friends, but you're pretty much by yourself. And then if you're with the wrong program, the 5% of the time that you're being engaged with, it's usually somebody yelling at you, telling you're going too slow. And so uh, when you have the opportunity, don't worry so much all the time about everything has to be technically perfect. There is that opportunity to allow kids to use the board, to talk to their friends, to let some steam off in practice, and again, I can go the whole other route on this thing, but I think we get so caught up in everything's got to be perfect all the time. Kickboards for social kick, I think it's a great part of, it's what kids look forward to. I know it's not technically correct, but you know what? It's mentally correct. Yeah, it beautiful. It beautifully said that why do kids swim? Because they love it. Because they're having a great time. Because they get to see their same friends. Why do so many of them get out of bed in the morning when they're not feeling great maybe or they've been up late doing schoolwork because they want to see their friends and their friends are already texting them, hey, man, I'll see you in 15 minutes. We're going to do this today. Or that that's the whole, it, you know, I, I just recently seeing you in Fort Lauderdale with the 1980 Olympic team. I don't think anyone talked about, hey, do you remember the day we did 32 100s on 115 and Millsy held 105. All I heard was stories about crazy practices um, and, and some of the fun stuff. And remember when we said that to coach, you remember when coach did that, those, uh, those memories and those moments are what makes the sport uh, so wonderful. And yeah, I, look, I totally agree. If we're overly focused, on just technical excellence, technical, the myth of technical perfection. There's another show on the myth of technical perfection. I think we've, we've, we've lost the plot a little bit there that, uh, you know, I'm big, you and I have spoken about this many times, but the only swimmer who doesn't get better is the one who's not coming. And why do they come? Well, they come because they love the sport because they love hanging out with their friends because they're having a good time because they're learning because they're getting better. The, all that, that's why they come. So denying them that because you want to squeeze in another time 400 kick, you know, but you're not thinking holistically. You're not thinking about the, the, the child or the person. You're just thinking about the athlete. Yeah. I think there's a couple more things really quick that I think we have to hit on. Uh, one, when shouldn't you use equipment? Um, from my standpoint, you shouldn't use equipment when someone is injured, uh, and it has the potential to re-injure or exasperate the injury. Um, that's probably the biggest time, or if the equipment doesn't necessarily coincide with what you're trying to teach someone. Um, I think those are probably my big two. How about you, Wayne? Yeah, good call. And I, I'd, I'd almost come at it from the other perspective too, is, is, deciding is allowing the use of equipment a positive technically mm. emotionally physiologically is key because i'm sure coaches have been in a position where they've gone okay guys today we're going to get after it i need you holding 110s on this they're holding 113s 114s one of the swimmers inevitably will say hey coach can we put fins on that's a moment where you got to say well how is this going to help the swimmer? How does this help the overall achievement of objectives? Is it, am I placating them because I, I want to keep it nice and smooth and I like a nice, happy group? Should I not use the equipment at this moment and insist that swimmers expect more of themselves? So do I attack this mentally first? Do I give them a little bit more rest? Mm. Or do I go, because you must have been in that position over and over is that kids are, and you're making that judgment call. Are they really, really tired or is there a, a lack of motivation in this moment? Have I missed something as a coach? Easy thing to do is say, okay, guys, look, it's just not there today. Everybody put fins on. 
think that that judgment call of knowing when to use and not use fins based on that overall dynamic are they hitting targets that's a that's a very important issue i think there was a great set when we were on the road i think it was academy bullets in chicago i think they went hundreds on on 201 okay so they started on on the top and every time they would come they would leave on the one the two the three the four okay but they always had to finish by the 40 okay so they had to finish by the 40 so the first one they had to go 140s the fifth one they had to go 135 and so on they started with stroke and you would go as far as you could making it on your stroke when you missed on your stroke you could switch to freestyle when you missed on freestyle you would switch to fins and you would go and the set sounds fairly easy until you're coming in on the 135 the 136 the 137 you have to go a minute some of these kids went beyond it was 40 some 100s that they would go because they were going hundreds long course with fins on in 55 seconds at the end of this 4500 set and so it was the integration of the fins into it as to okay where did where did you fail and where do you need help and so it was stroke to free to fins and um, it was really brutal set but I thought it I thought it incorporated a lot of different things into it um, that was really enjoyable for, it was enjoyable to watch. It felt bad for the kids, but you know what, at these days, you know, whatever. But that, that just opens up though, that, you know, that line by the great Australian swimming coach, Albert Einstein, which is you're more limited by your creativity than by your knowledge or intelligence yeah. that, you know, I do a set, uh, in quite often in, in camps and clinics, one-on-one racing, one person's got fins and a kickboard. The other person straight swimming and the aim is they race. Well, we know what's going to happen. The person with the fins and the kickboard is going to go fast kick to try and win, even though they've got the advantage anyway. And the swimmer's just going to try and draft off them. They're going to try and find some way to stay with them. And they're going to go really fast. Uh, is there any science behind it? Not really. But the kids go fast. They love it. They can't wait to change so that the kicker becomes the swimmer and the swimmer becomes the kicker. Is that what it was designed for? Not really, but it's a creative way of achieving the objective of getting swimmers to compete in one-on-one match racing, having a great time and going really fast. Excellent. And I think our last one is brain training with equipment. I obviously get this from Jonty Skinner with a lot of the things that he does to awaken the neural network and the, the neural pathways. Um, so it's things like paddle on right hand and sponge tied to a rope on the left foot. And so it's throwing the body off balance, but trying to maintain symmetry. And so you've got an overloaded hand with a normal hand. You've got an overloaded or a weighted foot with a normal foot. And you're trying to maintain the symmetry and it keeps you activated the whole time. It's, you know, the thing that maybe adding to that would be a tempo trainer and then starting to put a little stress on it to make sure that they're trying to maintain the same tempo when they've got all these different things going on. And so interesting ways to use equipment. Uh, it's it, Don't just read the label that comes on the equipment. Um, and don't just think that the equipment that is out there is the only equipment. Again, tie a, tie a sponge to a rope and tie it to the ankle of a swimmer. It's, it costs you like a couple dollars and it is torturous torturous i saw without word of a lie um gennady Turetsky, when he came out he designed a a pulley system that went the full length of the 50 at the australian institute of sport and they could really tightly control and fine-tune the speed saw some amazing stuff one of his favorite pieces of equipment for popov and michael klim patria thomas matt dunn was a big chunk of cheap sponge foam rubber with a cheap piece of rope tied to their waist. And I thought, wow, I mean, the, the money and the technology that they had available, and it was just a trip to the local hardware store, cutting the biggest possible piece they could, tying it with rope, nothing particularly fancy, that eventually the design group there built one with a, a waist with a Velcro strap and that all, which which we know. Funny story though, very quick. I was in an unnamed African country that begins with the letter Z for you, mm. Z. 
where the coach said, we do strength work with bricks. And I went, okay. What these guys would do, seriously, is they would tie a rope around their waist with a two-meter long piece of rope tied to, wait for it, an actual brick, which they drag along the bottom of the pool. Never seen anything like it. But the coach, as crazy as it sounds, uh, and I may get a rude email from him at some stage, but as crazy as it sounds, the coach has gone, I want to try and get my athletes stronger. How do I achieve that in the pool? I get them to tow something. Hadn't been exposed to the, the sponge and something that floats, but has gone, well, bricks are heavy. They're relatively small. And they, the bottom of the pool looked like a used pepperoni pizza. It was just a mashup yeah. because of all the bricks that have been dragged up and down. But that was the creative solution that that coach came up to on how do I get my swimmers stronger? We should probably add a disclaimer. Coaches, please don't tie bricks to your athletes' waist and have them drag up and down the pool and quote the third 50 as the source. Uh, not generally recommended. Especially if the pool is 16 feet deep. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, very cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we had this discussion. I know that we've got some mental training coming up very soon, which uh, I'm going to be very interested to hear and take part in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I hope people enjoyed this uh, you know, use equipment, but use it, you know, don't just use it for the sake of using it. Have a purpose for it, uh, in my opinion. But Yeah, good Wayne. call. And special thanks to John for giving up his time yeah. and sharing his insight. And uh, it, it, just great to see a swimming person taking a lead in the development and design of equipment that's going to make a difference. There's so many people trying to make money just from making equipment to sell actually see people who, who get it, who understand it, and are doing things that will make a difference is, is really wonderful. I know I said this for, was for my daughter, but I might go out and give it a shot. But uh, there will be no video of me with this spin on. I would so. like to see you wearing that, wearing a bikini of some kind, and singing the theme song from <laughs> The Little Mermaid. That, would, Little that Mermaid. would make I could retire happy seeing that. Goodness gracious. Well, I'll, I'll keep it on my list for sure. <laughs> All right, man. Good to see you. Have a great day, okay? Thanks, everybody. Bye.